recorder. Let's do it. So we're in, <coughs> excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14. And I just again want to review that since uh, chapter 10 in this long letter, Paul has been writing and talking about uh, the challenges and problems in the church. And he's talking about idolatry and orderly worship, the problem of the misuse of spiritual gifts, uh, problem of communion and how they're doing it, all of these various items. And stuck right in the middle of him talking about these challenges and problems and issues in the church, he has this, what's, what people call the love chapter, which is chapter 13. It's the shortest of all the chapters, but essentially what he's saying is that if, if this stuff isn't driven by love first, if it isn't strained through the grid of love, we're going to mess up all of these good things. We're going to take these good things and ultimately make them bad things. So the end of chapter 12, which is all about spiritual gifts, he says in, chapter th- in verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a more excellent way. And then he has this parenthetical, parenthetical in, uh, insertion of chapter 13, which is all about love. And then, and then he ends chapter 13 by saying this, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then he starts chapter 14 by saying, Pursue love. So you, you begin, when, when you take out the chapters, which are the way we read, whenever we see a chapter, we assume we're done with that and we're moving on with something else. When you take out the chapter divisions and you just read it through like you would read a letter from a relative, you begin to see the context and how Paul is just flowing this argument for several chapters in a row. And so now what he's going to do is he talked in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts and the misuse of them and how we're a body and how we're supposed to properly use them. Talks about love, how the gifts are supposed to be strained through the grid of love. And then he says, all right, now we're going to zero in on the two gifts that are being misused the most and how love has to to be the ruling factor over the application and manifestation of these gifts. And he ends this chapter with this whole part about um, orderly worship because tongues and prophecy in the church at Corinth were causing chaotic worship. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's 40 verses long. I have no idea if we're going to get through all 40 verses tonight. We may or we may not. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention is we we are going to have to do, it seems like everybody's going to, all the people in the other Bible studies are going to study Acts for this uh, this fall. I was going to do Acts after 1 Corinthians, so no, I'm not going to do it anymore. We're, We're just going to do the next logical thing and do 2 Corinthians. So I've already started my study on that. Um, but on uh, September 21st, we're going to have another special Wednesday night. We're going to start at 6.30. We're going to end at 8 o'clock. We're going to have dinner. We're going to have child care. We're going to do the whole thing. It's going to be a church-wide promotion. There's a, uh, one of the pastors at Redemption um, uh, Tucson is actually from uh, Africa, and he's got an amazing story, and he's here now. He's 43 years old. Uh, his name is Marcus Doe. Um, uh, he's, he's helping to lead Tucson, terrific guy, and he has started a new ministry called We Reconcile. He, has no, he had no biological father that he knew of, and, and he was actually killed in Africa. And so this ministry is actually um, reuniting fatherless men with their biological father, but doing it in a really healthy Way and and uh, I wanted him to be able to tell the story and then talk about this ministry. He ta- he told the uh, the lead team about this ministry in May when we were all just like dumbfounded at what he was doing. So that's going to be on September 21st. So sometime around there, either the week before that or the week after that, we'll start Second Corinthians. So chapter 14, verses one through five. Paul writes, and we'll spend most of our time in the first five verses because it sets everything else up. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So you need to pursue your spiritual giftedness the way God has wired you. Um, But then he says, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue 
speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So he, he goes from all the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, strain them through the uh, grid of love in chapter 13, and now he narrows in on the two gifts that are causing the most problems in, in Corinth, and two of the gifts that cause the most problems in the 21st century church as well. It's interesting how that works out. So he says, I think they're fascinating. This, this first paragraph is fascinating because these five verses, this first paragraph, is used by both people who want to tell you that the spiritual gifts of tongues no longer exist in the church. It's used by them. And it's also used by the people who advocate for the spiritual gifts of tongues, saying, see, Paul is advocating for the spiritual gifts of tongues. So people on both sides of this debate use this paragraph. It's fascinating to me. Okay? So those who insist on spe- that, that speaking in tongues is the mark of a true Christian. You're not a real Christian unless you speak in tongues. Okay? They use the middle clause of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 5. And they use, it, they, they, use, they use them both completely out of context in order to make their argument. But those who are cessationists, those who believe that tongues are no longer supposed to be practiced in the church, those who believe that tongues are a type of heresy, they overstate Paul's argument in these five verses. They miss the point of what Paul is actually saying here. So we're going to spend some time on verse 1. It's important to understand everything that Paul is saying in verse 1, so we're going to take it verse by verse. Uh, I'm sorry, clause by clause. So the first clause, pursue love. As Paul says in chapter 13, the first priority is that our spiritual gifts must be practiced From the standpoint of a gospel love. That means we have to have discernment. We have to have patience. We have to have empathy. There needs to be selflessness. And there needs to be humility. That's how spiritual gifts are supposed to be practiced. There should never be this lording over of a spiritual gift over other people in the church. How many of you have ever taken a gift, a spiritual gift inventory? yeah, Yeah, you went to seminary so you had to, yeah. So I figured out pretty quickly how to manipulate those spiritual gift inventories so that it always showed that my giftedness was in the areas that I wanted to be gifted in, you know. But it, it, I used to talk to Tom about this, our founding pastor, and, and yeah, tools are valuable and helpful, but we also felt like, you know, I don't know that you necessarily need those inventories. What are you good at, <laughs> you know? What are you good at that can help serve the church? Gosh, that just might be where you're gifted in, right? But then the trick is to not lord it over people, but to use it in humility, which means you also need the confirmation and the affirmation of the community. You need to be in community so that people can start coming to you and saying, I think you might be good at this. I think you might be good at that. I think you could do this. I think you could host a Sunday morning service, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) we'll see about that (laughs) Um, so uh, it's it's really important that we understand that we're not supposed to lord these things and we're going to talk a lot about that so the problem is the Corinthians weren't doing that with their spiritual gifts they were using their gifts to build themselves up to build their own kingdoms they weren't to serve others to help others it wasn't for the church it wasn't for their neighbors it was for their own personal edification and glorification So then Paul writes, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. The word translated earnestly desire is the Greek word from which we get the English word zealous. And in the Greek language and in the sociological context of the time, to be zealous about something means that you were striving for the pure, the true, the authentic, and the good. So when Paul says earnestly desire, he means only to desire those gifts that are real and that are profitable to the church. 
And the way so many people manifest and practice tongues and prophecy have nothing to do with that which is good, pure, true, authentic, but rather they were practicing them with their own selfish desires in mind. Paul then says, under the banner of love, pursue and seek the spiritual gifts that are good, authentic, pure, true, and righteous so that others may benefit from them. Gifts are given by the Spirit to serve others, not to build your own kingdom. And then he has this final clause, especially that you may prophesy. He writes, especially that you may prophesy. So has Paul just told us what the most important spiritual gift is? No, you got to read on. You need to read it in context. You got to read the rest of the paragraph. He's going to unpack that and make his point in the next four verses. And the Corinthians need to listen carefully to this. And of course, so do we. And in the midst of this presentation by Paul, he is going to put what you might call the tongue mongers in their place then and today. So before we move on, I want to define prophecy. And I did this last week, but I want to mention it again this week. The word prophesy, Paul is not using the word uh, to mean to predict the future. He's not saying that you, you just have this special gift to be able to just randomly be able to predict future events. Many people in the church think that's what it means, and many people think that they actually have that gift. It's usually those people that um, go to classes on Revelation. By the way, we just uh, affirmed the preaching calendar for 2023, and the 12 weeks before Advent in 2023, we're going to do the book of Revelation, and not just the first three verses. We're actually going to get into the meat of Revelation, and we know that at that point, people are going to kind of come out of the woodwork and say, I know the Bible says that no one knows the day or the hour, but I do. <laughs> and they're everywhere, okay? Anyway, it's not, it's not predicting the, the future. Paul also does not, absolutely does not use the word prophesy here to mean anyone can just walk up to anybody else and say, God told me to tell you. A lot of people like to do that, too. I told you some stories last week and, and before I, I went away to camp about that. And even more try to use this gift of prophecy in this way, which generally makes life miserable for anybody that gets in their path. Essentially what that is, the person who tries to use the gift of prophecy that way, the idea is power without accountability. How, would, how many of you would like power without accountability? The human condition has been looking for power without accountability for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And little did they know, all they had to do is come to church and, and proclaim they had the gift of prophecy. That's all you got to do. Okay? I'm being sarcastic, of course. So here's what it means. Some people have a, an extra special ability, God-given, Holy Spirit-indwelled ability of looking at the course of things that are happening, trends, behaviors, attitudes, and can then clearly apply and articulate biblical knowledge and wisdom to those things in order to say, if we continue in this vein, this is what's going to happen. And then it happens. That's it. That's prophesied. It's the ability to know God and what humans are up to and then speak to the coming consequences if things do not change. It's what the prophets did about 95% of the time in the Old Testament. That's what they were doing. And it got them in trouble through Jeremiah in a well. They, they didn't like the prophets very much because they kept going to the kings who had turned their back on God saying, you better, you better go back to Yahweh or in, we're in trouble. And they'd say, eh, off with his head. So in a way, it's like saying, I've seen this movie before, but you actually haven't, but it doesn't make the gifted prophet incorrect. Now, this is not nearly as exciting as most people want modern day prophets to be able to manifest prophecy. It's also a lot more work and a lot more dis uh, discipline. But when it's done well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's actually a wonderful gift for the church and the people in the church. But generally speaking, it's not going to win you a lot of friends. It's just not. Okay. All right, moving on to the rest of the paragraph. Verse 2. Two important items here, especially when you consider verse 5 with this. Number one, 
Tongues really do nothing to build up the church or other people. It's really just a prayer language in which to speak to and pray to God and praise him. Second of all, if you are going to speak in tongues in front of others in any context, you are supposed to have an interpreter who is gifted in interpretation in order to let others know what you are saying so that you can build up the church with what you're saying. And that interpreter has this gift of interpretation. And in Corinth, this is not what was happening. And I don't, I mentioned this last week, I don't see it happening around here, meaning in churches in America very much either, at all. I don't see it happening. So this is the beginning of Paul's plea to the church to do more genuine prophesying than speaking in tongues, because at least genuine prophecy, when done correctly, will build up the church and build others. And then he says, let me reread verse 3. And then he says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So Paul's clearly explaining that the proper use of the gift of prophecy is good for the church, and it's actually better for the church than manifesting tongues. And it makes sense because it's for upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. If you have an NIV or an RSV or a different translation, you might have different words there, but generally they they mean the same thing. So we're going to do a quick little word study on those three uh, words. Upbuilding is the word okadokamen, which literally means for edification, constructive criticism, and spiritual advancement. The word encouragement is paraklesen, which if you remember from the Gospel of John when we got into chapters 15 and 16... Um, Jesus said, it's good that I'm going away because I'm going to send you the helper or the encourager. And the word, the Greek word in there was paraclete. So same, same idea. And the word in this mode means to come to one's aid and comfort. So that's what prophesying is used for, prophecy. And then the word consolation, paramyathin. Literally, it means exhortation, even a calling out, but it's done with gentleness, hope, and comfort. So this is what good prophecy does for us. And then in verse 4, Paul just cuts right to it, and I'm sure he offended some of the people with this, just as many are offended today by this, but it needs to be said, tongues are mostly driven by pride. Prophecy, when it's done correctly, is driven by humility. Humility always, 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 always builds up, while pride always tears down. And then let me reread verse 5. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more, I want you to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So Paul reiterates that because tongues are more selfish than prophecy, he says prophecy is better unless you have an interpreter there so that the entire church can be built up by the tongues. Again, it hardly ever happens. It's gift malpractice. And we, and we really can't escape this. Everything that, Christ, that Paul is teaching in this letter points at three things that are paramount. And those three things are Christ, wisdom, and the church. The bride of Jesus. So Christ, wisdom, and the church. At the same time, he's saying in the church, there's no room for self-righteousness, foolishness, or self-centered consumerism. So the problems of self-righteousness, foolishness, and self-centered consumerism in the church are a huge challenge to the 21st century American church, in case you had not noticed. But here's what's interesting. They were also a huge challenge to the first century church in Corinth. Same problems. And the 21st century versions of of self-righteousness, foolishness, and self-centered consumerism, you could say virtue signaling would be the self-righteous part. I had to get off Twitter because of virtue signaling. I couldn't take it anymore. It was, it was depressing. I was thinking about starting to drink. Uh, the foolishness would be postmodern theory. And by the way, again, read cynical theories and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Read the book Cynical Theories. And then the last one, the self-centered consumerism would be doctrinizing preferences. You heard me use that term before, doctrinizing preferences. Somebody has a preference for how they want something to be done in the church. And so what they'll do is they'll try to take um, 
uh, Bible verses and make them say something that they don't say so that they can say, this is the way you're supposed to do that in church. I'm sure I've told this story before at my last church. Um, before the service started, I was walking down the center aisle and this lady stopped me and, and we, it was an older church. So we had, and we had a, a pipe organ. Anybody remember pipe organs? Okay. Anybody ever go to Organ Stop Pizza out in Mesa? It's a lot of fun. Anyway, we had a pipe organ. We actually had somebody who played it really well, Roz. She's really good at it. And so our first service was more traditional and older. I wore constructed pants and not jeans, and sometimes I wore a collar on my shirt. Anyway, um, but that was kind of the, the... And so Roz would play the organ before the service started, but then we used a little bit more... Content. We had a choir and we had a piano, and, and occasionally we'd allow a, an acoustic guitar up there, and then I'd get emails. But... Um, our second service was more of, you know, like what we have here, you know. But she stopped me and she said, Frank, I just want you to know, and she pointed at the pipe organ. She said, she said, that instrument, the pipe organ, that's the only instrument that God hears in heaven. He doesn't hear any other instrument. And, and this was back when I had less tact than I I know it's hard to believe I had less, ta- less tact at some point. Some of you are like, man, it must have really been bad back then. But anyway, I just look at it and I say, oh, really? That's interesting. So what you're telling me is that God never heard any instruments until the 16th century. Because that's when the pipe organ came online. And, and oh, by the way, the pipe organ originally wasn't in the church. That's not where it was first used. Anybody know where it was first used? In the brothels. Yeah. Beer drinking songs. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, was famous for taking beer-drinking melodies and putting theological words to them, and then they'd sing those in church. And you could always tell the people that knew the brothels because they'd be singing these theological melodies, but they'd be going like this, as if they had a mug of beer, you know? So, and then I said, that also means that God never heard David, King David, play his harp. Okay. Sometimes you can win an argument and, and, and lose the relationship. So <laughs> my wife is sitting there going, mm, yeah, okay. Anyway, um, so fasten your seatbelts because Paul gets even more jiggy here. He goes after tongues even more deeply in the next paragraph, 6 through 12. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless you bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes so that we can understand them, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves... If with your tongue you utter speech that is not, un, uh, not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none without, with, is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church." Stop practicing corporate tongues without interpreters. That's what he's saying. Okay? And, and he talks about, he, he uses this illustration of the musical instruments. Have you ever been somewhere and somebody's playing music and they're hitting all the wrong notes? And it's unintelligible and it doesn't make sense. Especially if it's a song you know and you know what the next note is and they mess it up. Right? So I showed three videos Sunday morning. If you were here Sunday morning, I showed three videos from camp. There was a fourth video. The fourth video was a different angle of us doing a pray, not a a campy praise song, but an actual real, you know, praise song. The problem is that, and I didn't realize this until we ran through the videos. The problem is, is that... um, as I was videoing it with my, with my camera, I was singing to the song. It ruined it. So we're going through the videos on Sunday morning. I said, we're just doing three videos. We're getting that other. Because somebody, what if somebody walked in at that point and heard that? They'd be like, nah, this is not the church for me. Well, Paul's making this comparison. 
he's saying, how difficult is it to understand a language? You, you know, you need an interpreter. If you don't speak Russian and you're speaking to, to somebody who only speaks Russian, you need somebody in between interpreting. If you're speaking in the Lord's language, tongues, but you're doing it in front of other people, you're not doing it in private, you need an interpreter so that others know what's going on so that they might be built up. That is the argument that Paul is making here. He says it's even detrimental. It's not good. Verse 12 is kind of sarcastic. He says if you're going to indulge the Holy Spirit, that's good. But again, it has to be for the church and not for your own personal edification. So next paragraph, 13 through 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the, in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't even know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He just keeps hammering away on this. So again, there's this emphasis on needing interpretation for the gift of tongues to be legitimate in a corporate setting. And then verses 14 and 15. So this is interesting because Paul again, and when I say again, I'm talking about his entire corpus, his 13 letters in the New Testament. But Paul again emphasizes the importance of the mind, cognition over feelings or affect. And we like to talk about the heart. And with David, we're going to have a lot of passages about David's heart. The word heart, the Hebrew word for heart in the Old Testament means something different than what we understand heart to mean. The Hebrew word heart means your entire internal system of knowing, intuiting, and discerning. For us, heart is just how we feel. I'm just going to follow how I feel. There's no cognition involved in that. When, when we speak of David's heart, there's also this addition of his mind, his cognition. So in the New Testament, Paul often talks about how we need a renewing of the mind. Our hearts need to be changed, but we need a renewing of the mind. We were just talking before all y'all came in, we were talking about the book I'm currently reading called Dopamine Nation and how the mind is affected by dopamine. And the mind... We need to rewire our minds. Paul says that even in effect in, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's praiseworthy, whatever is excellent, whatever is uh, just. He says all those things. He says, think about those things. Rewire your brains. He's saying that before scientific research even exposes that for us. But the importance of the mind over feelings. Uh, Tom, our founding pastor, used to say it this way. What you know trumps what you feel. And then, of course, after 2016, he found out that he couldn't say that anymore because people were triggered by the word Trump. Okay? So. Um, it, it's true. He quit saying it. But, but the point is, and Paul says, what you know trumps what you feel. So when I teach um, in... Uh, COM 225, COM 100, and, and MIN 430 at GCU. When I teach these classes, and we get into public speaking, and we get into theories on persuasion, especially in COM 100 with the freshmen, one of the things I'll do is, is I'll talk about how persuasion is mostly incremental. Okay? There, there's so many people think that with a seven-minute speech, they can come in and just blast a bunch of people and change their minds. Like that. So if you're on an issue, scales one to ten, you're at a ten, your audience is at a one, they're convinced that in seven minutes they can take an audience from a one to a ten, no problem, if they just pound them hard enough and they're passionate enough. Okay? The truth is, is that persuasion, the theory of persuasion shows that if you t speak to an audience that's at a 1, you're at a 10, 
if you can get, to, get them to think about moving to a 1.5, that's a victory because it's incremental. They, you need to hear things over and over and over and over before you really begin to slide down that spectrum. And, and it's, uh, a lot of it is based in, in this uh, thing called theory of confluence. Has anybody heard of the theory of confluence? So I wish I had the board out here for this. But theory of confluence, uh, imagine two big circles and they overlap, in, you know that little overlapping weird shaped football thing in the middle when they overlap? It says, most uh, persuasive speakers believe that if uh, you have two, uh, you have the way people feel about things and there is this little overlapping area where you and your audience actually have something in common. That's the, that's the confluence. You have something in common with your audience. But the outer edges are where you disagree 0 and 10 or 1 and 10. And, and the theory of persuasion has shown that most public speakers think that, well, I'm just going to start at the outside edge. I'm going to just blast them right from the start from the outside edge. And what the theory says is, no, what really works is start in the area of confluence, start here, establish a rapport, um, an affinity, uh, you know, something that you have in common with the audience and begin there and then begin to slowly move out towards the edges over time. That's how, that's how persuasion works. So all of that to say that on one of my quizzes, there's a multiple choice question. And it, and it just very simply says, persuasion is mostly difficult, feelings-based, incremental, and then something else. It's the only quiz question out of eight quizzes during the semester that I tell them before the test. I say, here's the answer. It's C, incremental. And yet, it's the question that is most often missed. They cannot resist circling feelings-based. Our culture has conditioned our youth that feelings rule everything. Read your scripture. Read your New Testament. Paul is constantly talking about the importance of renewing the mind. The mind is really important. Cognition is really important. I'm not saying that we're trying to turn everybody into left-brain Ottomans. That's not it at all. It is important that we have affect. All of that is true, and we can have a longer discussion about that if you want. And a really good book to read about that is Kurt Thompson's, uh, he's a Christian psychiatrist, Anatomy of the Soul. Excellent book to be able to read about that. Not saying that. I'm not saying it's only about the mind. I'm just saying that the overemphasis on feelings-based stuff is counteracted by what, a lot of what Paul writes in the New Testament. And he hits it again here in the middle of chapter 14. And then in um, verse 16, we see again that Paul has a concern for those who would see the chaos of corporate tongues and not be drawn to Jesus. Verse 17 is another reiteration. We need to be other-oriented, not selfish. Redemption Church is gospel-centered and outward-focused. In verses 18 and 19, Paul really lays it on. He says, you think you know what's going on? Paul says, I have way more experience than you do at all of it, and I'm better than all of you at all of it. This, this is Paul really asserting himself now. This is, this is Paul saying, look, this church has got some issues, and I'm going to have to really push hard on them. And then he says, and yet my joy comes not from building up myself, but building up the bride of Christ. See, Paul's not bashful about using hyperbole to, use his point, to make his point. Verses 20 through 25. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and they all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will, will they not say that you are out of your minds? You're crazy, you're insane. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. 
And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul, again, as he does in so many of his letters, addresses in verse 20, believers as mature and immature. If you recall when we went through Colossians, that was week three of Colossians, the idea of mature and immature believers. And here he's not bashful about telling the Corinthians that they're acting like children. In Romans 16, some of this language here is similar to Romans 16, 19. Be excellent in all that's good. Be innocent of evil. Yeah, I know. That's a camp song too, so I want to do all the motions with it. But you know that camp song, Jay? Be excellent. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. At what is good. Be innocent. Woo! Of evil. So you don't have to go to Iowa. Just come on Wednesday night. (laughs) Now, verses 22 and 23 belong together, and we need to know the Old Testament references. This is all, it's it's all from Isaiah 28 and Deuteronomy 28. What God is saying is that there is, is, there is that unintelligible uh, tongues are a sign of unbelief. It's, It's a sign of unbelief. You really don't believe in Jesus. If an unbeliever comes into corporate worship and seeks sees everyone speaking in tongues, essentially gibberish, they'll conclude that the people are insane and they will leave, not having heard the gospel. Yet with sound biblical prophecy, the visitor has the opportunity to learn and to be built up, to hear the good news of Jesus, perhaps come to Christ. So what then is the goal for all of this? The goal is orderly worship, which Paul moves into now. For God is not a God of confusion or chaos, but of peace and order. 32 through 33a. I'm sorry, 26 through 33, uh, 33a. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three. Interesting, not an entire room full. Okay. And each in turn, and let someone interpret. There's an order to this. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets, and, uh, of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So Paul's emphasis on how the gift of tongues, if it is biblical and genuine, is supposed to be manifest with an interpreter. Now again, I, I, I had this conversation with... Um, uh, another pastor uh, Tuesday at lunch, we were talking about this, and he said the same thing. He said, I'm not a cessationist. I believe that tongues are still a spiritual gift, but I've yet to see it practiced biblically. And the only time it would be practiced biblically, it seems, unless there's an interpreter, is if you're just using it to pray alone. So how would I ever see somebody praying alone? By definition, if I'm there watching them pray, they're not alone. Okay? And there would need to be an interpreter. So but we haven't seen it practiced in church in a biblical way. And then, and then th- there comes this question too. Can you teach a spiritual gift? If somebody does not have the gift of leadership, can you turn them into a great leader? You, you can make them a better leader in some context by using, you know, like Maxwell's 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. You can make them a better leader but if, they don't, if they're not gifted in that way, if they don't have that intuition or whatever it is, you're never going to make them a great leader. Think, think, about, think about stand-up comedy. Okay? You can give somebody the best jokes ever, and they could stand up in front of an audience, and the audience will boo them off the stage because they're not gifted at it. Right? Have you ever seen me try to imitate Brian Regan? Okay, that's good because it's awful and I don't want you to see it. Because he has a gift. 
He's really funny and he can write really funny stuff, but he also is gifted in that way. It's the same thing in the church, you know. Um, and so uh, one time I was at a church and they were having a class, a Bible study class. We're going to teach you how to speak in tongues. Okay, so wait a minute. I thought the Spirit gave the ability to speak in tongues. Now, the Spirit hasn't blessed me with that yet. Okay? Sometimes Jackie thinks I am speaking in tongues when she has no idea what I'm talking about. And, I'm, and it's clear in my mind. But the, the Spirit hasn't gifted me that way. I, I don't think I can walk into a class at some church and have them say, well, here's, here's how you do it. Okay? Now, you can... You can take a gift and you can work with it and make it better. That's one of the things that we do at Preaching Collective every week at Redemption Church. When we get all the preaching pastors together every Wednesday at 9 and we work through the passage for the Sunday that's 11 days away. That is a way of helping um, pastors who are gifted in, in proclamation become even better at it. So that, that does, uh, in fact, work. Also, this is definitely the foundation of why uh, there is a preacher and others listen. Uh, I found in 23 years of being lead pastor that there are a lot of people who want a microphone on Sunday morning, not for the benefit of the church, but for the benefit of themselves. I'm always quite leery of people who are desperate for me to give them a platform in the church. I'm sure some of you have heard these stories, too. Uh, after a service, occasionally somebody will walk up to me, and it's like, it's like they all go to the same seminar. Or something, but they'll walk up to me and they go, "Oh my goodness, this is my first time here. I, I, I didn't even know a church like this exists. It's just so wonderful. I feel the spirit moving here. It's just, oh man, it's so fantastic. Uh, I, I got to tell you, I am certain that the spirit is moving in this church in a way. You, you need to let me come in some Sunday and present, <laughs> and then it's blah 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 blah. It's like I don't even know you. <laughs> Why would I do that? You know." Uh, about four years ago, we had a guy show up, and uh, second Sunday here, he came up and cornered me and said, I'm an expert in, in, uh, in church history. You need to give me a classroom and give me people to teach. Same thing. I, I, I don't even know you. We have to have a relationship first. We have to understand who each other is, you know. It's, it's really... I, I would never walk into a law firm and just declare that I need to start doing stuff in there, Okay. So they'd call security, which, by the way, is why we have police officers here on Sunday. <laughs> then, these are really fun verses. Shoot, I thought I'd get through without having to do this tonight. Okay, so 33B uh, through, I'm sorry, so yeah, 33B through 35. So, as in all the churches of the saints, the women shall keep silent in the churches. Anybody, that's your life verse? Anyone? <laughs> For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right, next paragraph. No. <laughs> so what happened there? What, what happened there? What does that have to do with anything? And why is Paul writing this? Okay. Now, you can imagine these verses have been used in various ways over the years, right? So, lucky for you, I researched this really well. And I went to a number of, I, I went to a, 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 a variety of sources, but many of them were reformed. So, uh, that was helpful because uh, they had, I think, the strongest interpretations that might actually put our minds a little bit at ease at this. But here, here are some options. Option one. Paul didn't write verses 33b through 36. They were added later by someone else. No, no good. Every extant 1 Corinthians text that we have has this passage. There, that's just supposition. There's no indication at all that somebody might have added it later. I believe Paul wrote that. Most people do. But that's, that's uh, presented by many scholars as a possibility as to why it's in there. Option two, uh, Paul really meant that women were never to speak or prophesy in a church service at all. Nope, not good. 
Because if you look at 1 Corinthians 11.5, women are praying and prophesying in church services. Right? So that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, Paul had no problem with it. The only problem he had was if their hair was in a style of a, pro, of a local prostitute. It's the only problem he would have with it. But women were praying and prophesying in church. They were speaking in church. Option three. Women were the one causing all the disorder when it came to tongues and prophecy. And so that's why Paul wrote this. It's all the women causing the problems. Nope, not good. No textual support for that. Now, let's just you know, admit, concede. I'm sure women caused problems in the church at Corinth, just like women caused problems in the 21st century church. I'm sure men caused problems in the first century Corinthian church just like men cause problems in the church today. But again, that's not what's going on here. So option four, the most likely explanation. And again, I'm telling you, we can't say for sure. We just don't have enough information. We can say pretty much for sure what isn't going on, which is those three. But anyway, here's the explanation that most people land on. During the interpretation or explication phrases, uh, phases, during the interpretation or explication phases, of the service where there's prophecy, there would sometimes be confusion as to what was being said. You ever been somewhere and somebody's speaking and he says or she says something that uh, you didn't quite understand and you immediately turn to the person next to What did they say? What are they saying? How about in a movie? Have you ever sat behind the person who every five seconds, what did he say? You know, that's annoying. Anyway. So you, you end up with these sidebar conversations, okay? So because this is the context of Paul pushing hard for orderly, peaceful worship, that's the interpretation phase, he's insisting that these sidebar conversations between husbands and wives not be taken up. Have you ever been in a room where one sidebar conversation starts and the next thing you know the whole room is doing it and you've lost control of the room? That's called a college classroom, okay? <laughs> All right? So pretty soon what happens is there's too much noise and chaos. So it pushes against orderly worship. Okay? So in this case, Paul does address the wives and ask them to leave it alone until they get home because for some reason he may believe that they're the ones that are being most perplexed by what's being say, said because they are the ones that have not been trained in the law as youngsters in the Jewish um, and even in the uh, Greek school system. Because generally speaking, girls didn't go to school or Hebrew school in the first century. It was just boys and men that did that. Okay? Now I know that's not very satisfactory, but it's hard to get uh, this interpretation absolutely perfect, and it's the best that we have, and we think that's what's going on here. We also don't know all of the local, in that moment, contextual nuances, but we know a lot of them. The main thing to remember, though, I think, is that Paul's major points here are that tongues are not as beneficial as prophecy. Uh, tongues create chaos. If there's no interpretation, that creates chaos. And worship is supposed to be orderly. And anything that disorders worship should be stopped. Some of you were around, a couple of you were around, back when we were at uh, 42nd Street and Thomas, and we had... Uh, that uh, lady, uh, Chloe, who came in and disrupted a couple of, she did it once, and then about four weeks later, she did it again. And after this, you know, after the, the first time, there was this like, okay, we're getting you help and all that, and you can come back. After she did it the second time, we had to go to her and say, listen, uh, you, you, can't, you, can't dis, you can't be disorderly in the service. We have to have orderly services. So you can't do that. So the only way you can come to service is if you sit in the back next to the police officer. It's the only way you can come. I think I've told some of you that when we met with her the second time, David Massey asked her, um, is there a particular reason that you, you uh, interrupt the sermon and never at any other time? And she says, yeah, I just, I just I feel compelled to stop Frank from speaking. <laughs> and, and David's sitting over there, she's sitting there, and I'm sitting here, and she's looking at me when she says that, and I look at David, and he is doing everything he can not to laugh. <laughs> he thought that was really funny. Anyway, last paragraph, and, and we're done. Just give me one more minute, because this paragraph goes quick. Uh, 36, or was, it, uh, or was it from you that the word of God came? Oh, 
That's in your face. Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. See, there you go. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Okay? But all things should be done decently in order. Forbid them only if they're not going to be done in order the way they're supposed to be with an interpreter. So, Paul uses that last paragraph to reiterate everything I just said. God is in charge, love prevails, prophecy is better than tongues, especially the way they're being practiced, and worship must be orderly. So, uh, what I want to do next week, next week is chapter 15, again, uh, it's 59 verses long, I doubt we'll get through all of 59, it's a long chapter. Uh, Larry Wright, who was Tom Schrader's spiritual father, calls uh, 1 Corinthians 15 the gospel in a nutshell. And I'll explain why. It's, it's kind of a nice little um, metaphor. But I think we're going to start there with just saying, all right, do we have any questions up to this point in this book? In case anybody has any questions. Maybe you don't, and we'll dive right in. But I thought, especially after chapter 14, it's been heavy these last several chapters, uh, we, might open, but we might start with just some questions and see where that goes and see if I still feel like teaching after the questions. Okay, so let me pray, and we'll see you Sunday morning. Our gracious and holy God, thank you for your word and its truth. And uh, where we struggle with these interpretations, I pray for grace, insight, and wisdom, uh, that we would know your heart, we would know your mind. Paul says, have the mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, so that we could understand uh, humility and submission and the joy that comes with it. So help us with that. Help us with these tough interpretations, but also help us to understand the way you gift the church and individual members of it so that we can be a body and that we can be a body that love others, loves others. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.